The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Amber Athey, who is The Spectator's Washington editor, and we're going to be talking about the saga over Kevin McCarthy. Now, Amber, I think we should uh, explain a little bit for our British listeners uh, what's going on here, because there's this very peculiar story of the fact that uh, the American House of Congress seems unable at the moment, I think we're currently on the 11th vote, four days to the House of Representatives will be voting to elect a new speaker and the Republicans have a majority, but because of a rebellion um, on the right of the Republican Party, they've been unable to elect Kevin McCarthy, who is sort of seen as an establishment choice, but nonetheless has the backing of Donald Trump. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that the approximately 20 members of the House Freedom Caucus have been opposed to McCarthy's speakership basically since Republicans won the House. And they've been trying to negotiate a set of concessions from McCarthy, which include things like having more House Freedom Caucus members lead committees, having more investigatory power, and then placing limits on the speakership itself. So um, limiting the number of members that would be required to force a vote on ousting the speaker, um, instituting uh, term limits for members of the House, and basically turning the speakership into more of a ceremonial position than one with any real leadership. But the problem, I think, and why this debate has gotten so fraught and why there's been so many votes is that there is a split even within the Freedom Caucus. There are members within the Freedom Caucus who will never vote for Kevin McCarthy no matter what. Matt Gates said this last night in an interview on Fox News with Laura Ingram. And then there are other members of the Freedom Caucus who are happy to vote for McCarthy if he gives up a certain number of concessions. And they also disagree on how many concessions are considered appropriate. Then there's members like Jim Jordan who have been nominating Kevin McCarthy over and over again and voting for him and say that they don't even want to pursue uh, having a different speaker entirely. So until they can get on the same page, it's going to be difficult to see how exactly Kevin McCarthy can negotiate his way out of this. But according to latest reports as of last night, it seems like he's going to be able to peel off enough members to hit that 218 vote threshold within the next few days. The rebels have come under a lot of criticism, uh, the Republican rebels, for being self-destructive. Even Trump, the Trump family seems to be accusing them of uh, risking, risking scuppering the, the, the moderate success of a House victory in the midterms. Has that criticism of them been exaggerated? Because there was talk that, you know, Liz Cheney might become speaker, that a sort of, that an anti-Republican Republican might become speaker, or that possibly even a Democrat might 
um, because they were failing so drastically to get Kevin McCarthy over the line. I think it's unlikely that the Democrats would be able to take power at this point because the Democrats are have fashioned themselves as so anti-Republican that if any of them voted for Kevin McCarthy, it would be seen as very problematic to the caucus. And if there's one thing Democrats are good at, it's at sticking together. So the idea that any of the moderate Democrats would switch their vote away from Hakeem Jeffries, who is considered a historic, would be considered a historic leader um, and certainly a historic speaker for them, just doesn't seem plausible to me. Um, I think the real problem right now is that the longer Republicans fail to coalesce uh, around one person, obviously the less that they can accomplish and the less power that they have. And I, you know, I, I understand both sides of this because if you are the Freedom Caucus, you should have an alternative in mind if you're going to oppose Kevin McCarthy no matter what, and they failed to present an alternative viable candidate. At the same time, I understand the lack of trust for Kevin McCarthy, given he has been historically a person who was willing to promise and bet the farm, but then when he actually gets into power, tends to run with the establishment and doesn't keep very many of those promises. So having checks on him as a speaker is probably a good thing. Um, so there's a, a bit to like about both sides here, and I think that's why it's been so difficult for them to reach this, this middle ground where they both feel very satisfied with what they've been able to achieve. Isn't uh, part of the problem that if you're a successful, ambitious congressman in the Republican Party, why would you want to be speaker at the moment? I mean, Kevin McCarthy, if he gets in, is going to have a very difficult time because even though they've got this slender majority, he has to keep together a very fractious party. I don't know anyone who really wants the job besides Kevin McCarthy. And isn't that the problem? I think that's why the Freedom Caucus couldn't field an alternative candidate, because Kevin McCarthy has been dying to be speaker since he first lost the position to Paul Ryan years ago during the Trump presidency. He's a guy who clearly is semi-obsessed with power. Um, his entire political career has not been about ideology. It's been about maneuvering his way to get to the top as quickly and efficiently as possible. And the, the members of the Freedom Caucus are almost entirely about ideology. I mean, that's not to say that they're not fundraising off of this. They're not gaining political clout or social media followers, what have you. But I don't think that they're in this because they secretly want to be the person controlling the speakership. Um, so you just have two different, I think, motivations here. And to find someone who has been groomed for the position like McCarthy has, is willing to take all of that heat that McCarthy is certainly going to have, and have the ability to bring together a Republican Party that does have a lot of different ideological factions, it's certainly not something that I would want. And I think a lot of sane people would, would probably refuse to be a part of. And even Jim Jordan, who I think would be actually be a pretty viable alternative because he's pretty well trusted by the Republican Party. He does lean more conservative, so he would get the votes of the Freedom Caucus, is saying, I don't want this. Mm. I mean, you, you shock me by saying that Kevin McCarthy is, a, is an amoral, uh, power-seeking politician <laughs> in Washington. Um, but obviously, the problem for, another problem for the Republicans here is that this is catnip for the Democrats. I mean, this 
justifies the view um, in Biden world that Biden can win again. The next two years are going to be good because the Republican Party is still um, eating itself alive. There's an element of that to it. I mean, you heard Democrats actually cheering as each uh, each vote, one after the other, failed to elect a Republican speaker. Um, they were thrilled to see the Republican Party fracturing in public. And if there's one thing you can say about the Democrats, they have their squabbles, but they're almost always resolved in private. And that includes when the squad was constantly pecking at Nancy Pelosi. She was able to tamp that down and get them in line when it came time to vote. The Republicans don't have that similar ability. They like to air a lot of their grievances in public. I Watching this, I can't help but find the whole thing kind of funny, um, honestly, because it's it's gotten so absurd. And also because I think to some extent the Republican Party kind of deserves it. I mean, with the 2022 midterms, not taking back the Senate, barely uh, taking back the House, and only doing so thanks to basically Lee Zeldin campaigning brilliantly in New York and dragging up every uh, Republican House seat in Long Island with him. It, it's they kind of deserve to to go through this nonsense because they just didn't do enough to win in a year that should have been an absolute red wave. And Kevin McCarthy in particular. If he had, uh, you know, run better campaigns, if maybe he had stayed out of these primaries, if he had adopted something better than this milquetoast commitment to America game plan that he released ahead of the election, then he would have had enough votes to secure the speakership without going through all of this. Well, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because right wing parties are thought to be more ruthless, more efficient um, or when it comes to party discipline and so on. But actually, if you look at Britain and the Labour Party and the Tories at the moment, or if you look at the Democrats and Republicans, it's when it comes to putting down populist insurgencies, the Republicans have failed, really. You know, you go back to 2016, the Republicans failed to stop Donald Trump. But Hillary Clinton was able to beat Bernie Sanders. Similarly, in 2020, Joe Biden was able to beat Bernie Sanders again, even though in many ways he was the most popular candidate. They found a way to freeze him out. Why do you think that is? Why are Democrats uh, better at party discipline? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't really have a good answer to it. Um, it's just, to me, the way it's always been. And, I mean, maybe it's a question of better leadership in terms of being more interested in power and and unification. Maybe it's just their ideology. Um, the left tends to see Republicans and conservatives as a unique threat to the Democratic, Democratic Republic. They tend to paint their enemies um, politically as evil or as somehow uniquely morally bad. And when that's the, when you've managed to paint the enemy in that way, I think it does tend to lead itself to being more willing to stick with your own members. The Republican Party, on the other hand, is still kind of in the uh, the honeymoon phase where they say, well, we disagree on things with the left, but we all kind of want the same thing. We all want what's best for America. And so they're more willing, I think, to work across the aisle and be a bit more bipartisan, um, often to their own detriment. 
Do you think it could be with something to do with the donor class in that uh, the Republican Party, yes, there are lots of very, very rich Republican donors, but they tend to be more involved in the political side and the ideological arguments and so on, whereas the Democrats have these sort of super powerful, super, super rich donors. And so they're not as beholden to popular grassroots of their party. I think that's why Trump became so powerful was because he didn't have to rely on those mega donors, right? I mean, a lot of his donations were grassroots. Um, A lot of his support was grassroots. And so that was something that was very organic, the Trump victory. And, you know, from my perspective, these House Freedom Caucus members have had a similar boost thanks to Trump. Their policies have gotten increasingly popular among the American people. And so why should they fold? Why, why should they give in to the McCarthy class, which does have a lot of special interest support and a lot of big donor support um, when they feel they're on the side of the American people? And certainly the Republican Party, when you look at it from a grassroots perspective, has been generally in favor of the more populist Trump policies over the past six, seven years. Um, So, yeah, there's absolutely an element of that. Um, It's sort of the grassroots versus the establishment right now. And uh, I think the the question is, how much do you give up of the grassroots in order to have an effective coalition? Uh, And no one seems to have a really good answer for that. Well, and if you think about, you know, the democratic elite, the morally compromised democratic elite, if you like, it's hard to think of a more perfect figure than Nancy Pelosi, who is, of course, the departing speaker. But there's been fears this week that she may have to stick around because of because of um, the, the the impasse in Congress. I don't think that's right, necessarily, is it? No, I don't think that's right. I mean, she's already groomed her successor, Hakeem Jeffries. The Democrats have accepted him. Um, again, this was all done before, probably even before the midterms, they had settled on this plan and they all stuck to it. There was no one running around trying to replace Hakeem. There was no one trying to question Nancy Pelosi's chosen successor. It was all done in private. And I would be curious to know on the Republican side what the closed door conversations looked like shortly after the midterms and and how Kevin McCarthy was negotiating what the Freedom Caucus specifically was asking for and what they said their red line was, because we're hearing two different stories, right? We're hearing from the Freedom Caucus that McCarthy was threatening them, that he's been having uh, you know, donors run campaigns against these people in their home districts, that he's been telling them he's going to yank their committee assignments if they don't vote for him. And then you have McCarthy saying, actually, no, I've conceded all of these things and they're still telling me that they are not going to vote for me and there's only so much that I can offer them and these threats are bogus. Um, so I guess I would just like to, <laughs> to know, you know, who's telling the truth here and, uh, and who to trust exactly because I don't know that anyone in this situation is, is you know, a perfect beacon of truth that you can look to. There's probably a bit of truth on both sides. To, to what extent do you think Donald Trump's, you know, this, this story shows the waning power of, of Donald Trump? Because, you know, clearly McCarthy and him agreed that he was going to support McCarthy at some stage. I know he's vacillated a bit, but um, he's certainly been quite clear in recent days about his why, why McCarthy has to be elected. 
Um, and yet the rebels aren't listening to them. And even among the rebels, as you've pointed out with the Freedom Caucus, there seems to be different reasons for objecting to them. There's a lot of bickering going on. Some of the more ex- people you think of as being more on the extreme end of the Trumpist spectrum have endorsed um, McCarthy, I think. So what, I mean, is Trumpism itself kind of falling flat on its face? I think it's a question of Trumpism, the ideology versus Trumpism, the person and loyalty to Trump, the person has waned over the past year. Absolutely. You see people picking up his policy positions and saying Trump did a great job of putting those into the mainstream shifting the Overton window, changing the coalition of the Republican Party to one that's more amenable to the working class. But his presidency was imperfect, and he as a person is imperfect. He brought in a lot of bad staffing (laughs) decisions. He allowed people within his orbit to sway him away from uh, making stronger policy decisions. And afterwards, after he left office has been uniquely focused on the results of the 2020 election and also has waded into just total weirdness, like with selling the NFT baseball cards. Um, So there's been a lot of reasons for people and a lot of excuses for people to be able to separate themselves from Trump the person and simply adopt the policies. And you're seeing that split now with people like Matt Gates again, last night on Laura Ingram saying, um, I love Trump. I supported Trump. I defended Trump when I was in Congress, but I think he's got it wrong on this one. Um, and there seems to be a more open willingness to say that now than there was two years ago. And Matt Gates, of course, is from Florida. Uh, he's part of a very powerful Florida political family. Um, and I think the, the rumours are then, with, with his manoeuvring in recent days, that something big might be about to happen with Ron DeSantis and that Ron DeSantis is about to announce or or may make it very obvious that he's going to announce quite soon, um, and that the Republican Party are therefore gravitating towards him uh, quite quickly. Have you heard anything about that? What do you think? I have not. DeSantis's team is pretty notoriously very tight-lipped. They don't have leaks. Um, opposite of Trump, basically, uh, DeSantis has kept a very close circle and is very careful about who he keeps in his orbit. And if there were leakers, he would fire them immediately. That's not something that Trump did when he was in office. And so no no one outside of that can really say definitively whether or not DeSantis is going to announce. It's just a whole bunch of speculation. And if someone who doesn't work for DeSantis tells you that they know for sure, they're probably lying. Um, so no, I don't know about a, a potential DeSantis announcement coming. Um, but I, I don't think that these comments from Republicans are necessarily an indication that that's going to happen. I think it's more of them just kind of hedging their bets just in case, Uh, because no one wants to be on the wrong side of of this issue, because if Trump ends up winning the nomination and 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 winning another presidency, possibly, and there were Republicans who came out and endorsed DeSantis or somebody else, they're going to be viewed as the never Trump class. And then all of a sudden they are persona non grata in a Trump administration. Uh, if the opposite happens and these people stick with Trump to the bitter end and Trump goes down in a supernova uh, type explosion, then they don't get that really desired access to DeSantis. So I think everyone's just trying to play it really, really carefully right now. 
finally, Amber, a lot of Democrats obviously are hoping for Trump to stick around, cause as much trouble and either win narrowly, uh, but having sort of destroyed his party in the process, or lose narrowly and then possibly be- do a third party bid uh, and split the right in half. From your understanding of Trump, you've interviewed him. Do you think there is any chance if he lost the nomination, he would do what he hasn't done before and accept the result gracefully and then endorse uh, the candidate that beat him? Perhaps he would whine and moan about the result, but I, I, I don't buy the idea that he would run as an independent candidate just to get revenge on the Republican Party. Um, he would probably turn it into, you know, the establishment Republicans or just like the Democrats who rigged the election. And he would complain about it for about a year and then maybe fade away. But I don't know. I mean, Trump is, if anything, unpredictable. And I don't have a a perfect insight into his psychology. Well, Uh, nobody does. But I mean, do you think the danger? Some people are saying the problem for him is that the Trump story has become boring. Americans are sick of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any truth in that? There's definitely Trump fatigue. There was Trump fatigue in 2020. I mean, outside of a lot of the things that the Democrats did do prior to the election to perhaps sway the result, and that doesn't mean changing votes. That means changing the way votes were cast or which votes were counted. And of course, the suppression of information that could have potentially led voters to vote for Trump. Outside of all of that, people uh, saw Biden as the return to normalcy candidate. That was how the media portrayed him. That was how he ran his campaign, was I'm going to be sane and measured and the adults are back in the room, was the line that the Biden campaign kept saying. And as false as that was, I think a lot of people found that very compelling because four years of Trump just felt crazy. And I don't know that that was necessarily Trump's fault either. Obviously, the media took a lot of tiny little stories and blew them entirely out of proportion and helped create this uh, hysteria against his entire presidency. Um, So I'm not saying any of this to say that it was uniquely Trump's fault. But when we get to the recent Truth Social posts and all of the bloviating, it just feels like when Trump ran in 2016, it was a campaign that was based on the grievances of the American worker. And now it feels like a campaign based on the grievances of Trump. I'm guessing you did not buy uh, a Trump NFT, Amber. <laughs> no, I did not buy a Trump NFT. But I don't know, maybe I should have gotten one for family for Christmas. I'm sure they would have really appreciated that as inflation is at historic highs. They might have some value in, in posterity. But um, Amber, thank you very much for coming on to Americano and um, have a very, very good start to 2023. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. <laughs>